I wasn't the brightest kid in school, and apparently, depending on if it's like a leap year or something, I think there are 365 days in a year. But I just read something about the Earth is actually spinning faster on its axis now. It's messing up like the time continuum. But that's for another podcast, I think. I mentioned that because typically in 365 days, things are pretty mundane. No, not today on May 31st, people, because I'm telling you why. On today's market call, by the way, today's market call brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. Not only is Dan Nathan here, but Danny Moses is here and Carter Braxton freaking Worth is here from Worth Charting. If we had EY from SoFi with her cat out in parts unknown, we'd have a friggin' full house. I'd play that hand. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well, guy. Um, how you doing, man? You, you're all knotted up today. Um, you've had a heck of a couple days here. You're playing hurt a little bit. We can hear it in your sniffles. Last night on Fast Money, uh, you know, guy was not on the screen. He was remote, and all of a sudden we'd hear somebody blowing their nose and this and that or whatever. But you, you seem a little bit better, and you got a big I'm smile. I'm fine. I'm fine. You're fine. I'm you're trying not- to figure out talking heads. How did I get here? I'm walking down the street. Hey, Danny, come on up. Glad to be here with you, gentlemen. Yeah, well, this is kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, listen, you know, guys, like put some comments in the comment section here. Anytime Danny is at the risk reversal media global headquarters, I mean, we want him on the market call, don't we, there, guy Dami? Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Absolutely. And it's it's a it's amazing to me. I think, you know, time moves forward for most people, but in Danny Moses's case, Time sort of goes backwards because if I'm not mistaken, Danny, you get better looking every freaking oh, I time that. I see you. All right, let let wait, like let's just do it right out of the gate. Let's bring Carter in here. Let's have a major bro down because this is like this is a, oh, there he is. Wow. There, these guys, Danny, this is, the, uh, back. this is the over fifty crowd. This is AARP. Is that what this is? <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, let, listen, let, let's do it. Speaking of over 50, and he's just a few years older, 50, over 50. But uh, Doug Cass often hits Guy and myself uh, before the show. And he says, here's a good one. And he had an email to us. He said the dot com mania had only one dot, but the AI mania has two dots. Yep. AI ergo is very dotty. Um, I like that here because, listen, guys, I almost lost my shit on Fast Money. Whoa. Almost? Well, yeah. Well, oh, really? I you, think it was pretty. I lost my shit a little bit. And because we had two conversations, okay? We had a conversation that we let off about AI and like how it just infused itself in the market cap and the valuations of the biggest companies in the market. And we were talking about also how just small caps, energy, uh, staples. I mean, the list, you know, like the list goes resources, the list goes on and on and on that we're acting like dog shit okay and then you saw what's going on in china and you saw the data there right so like we had that conversation then we had a totally separate other conversation about the banks okay and that felt like a conversation from probably march or april or may of 2008 and the ai conversation felt like a conversation that you might have had in december of 1999 or january or february of 2000 and we did that all in one show so talk to me, guy. You were on the set here uh, last night. And I mean, like, didn't that feel like kind of creepy? Yeah, it's interesting because I understand what's going on. I think we all do in terms of the mania around uh, AI and everything surrounding it and all these stocks that seem to be caught up in the wake of it. Obviously, we'll talk about some of the names today, but below the surface, things are concerning. And you're right to point out energy stocks. OIH is probably at its lowest level in four or five months. Materials are getting blasted. Gold's hanging in there, but I would submit, and Danny would probably agree, 
I don't think gold is a commodity in the true sense of the word. There's really no end use. But I'll say this. The thing that sort of sticks out to me like a sore thumb, Dan, is how poorly the banks continue to trade. I mean, it's bounced a little, the KRE and the BKX, but not nearly commensurate with the broader market. So people can get all excited all they want about this new technology and the fact that AI is going to take us to the new millennium. It's going to drive the broader market. But banks are telling a much different story. Yeah, banks are, you know, keeping money in reserve. They see quantitative tightening still happening. The risk reward for them to go out and lend on these margins doesn't make a lot of sense. I think they'll be focused on their current customer base and what they need to refi out there, right, to protect their own investments and so forth. And we're already seeing it. We talked about it last week. Um, banks are offloading to non-banks now um, some of their assets and try to get refinancing because they can't get out there. Today, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal how, you know, loan demand cannot meet the supply at this moment because there's just not enough supply out there. So a lot of zombie companies out there. And just to go back to your point on this AI trade, listen, I have no problem with people going and buying a, a theme or a thesis and, you know, and expressing it in some of these names at all. I mean, but I feel bad for the people that pile in that believe that they don't care about price, which was the title of our show last week on the tape. Price, price the wayside just to be a part of something. Yeah. And, well, and that's the problem here. And I think Dan's, not anger, but Dan's emotion is really tied to to help people. I really believe that. And it's frustrating because between the four of us, we've seen 150 cycles. Um, and so we've <laughs> seen the game before, and it always goes longer and farther than you think it's going to go, yeah. both to the upside. And I will say this on the downside, I'll say this, when things do get hairy, and I believe Guy just described a very hairy situation that I believe that we're actually in, X this AI, things would feel kind of a lot worse. The same can be said to this, it's important to know. Everyone picks their spots on the downside when they're going to buy. They don't, when the stocks actually get there, they don't do it. That's, right. That's as bad a behavior as chasing at the top is not buying at the no, bottom. No doubt. We'll do that someday. But, but, but so, yeah. Carter, and here's one for you. Okay. And the last point that I had last night um, in this block that we were talking about this stuff, and, you know, I just said that, listen, you know, the, the thing for me, and Danny, you make this point on, on the tape all the time, is like, you know, we're trying to use our experience. We make mistakes like everybody else in the markets, okay? But we try to do it rules-based, that sort of thing, right? And try to take the emotion, let's say, out of the decision-making process. But obviously, markets are very emotional. And so the last point I made, Carter, is like why I'm so emphatic up here is like if you're buying NVIDIA after it just rallied literally like – $400 billion in market cap, okay? Because this thing that we all know, you're probably doing it incorrectly. And just like things overshoot to the upside, they tend to do it to the downside also. And we've seen that. I listed again and again examples of stocks. Meta was a great example in late 21. Tesla was a great example in late 21. Those stocks are 75% of their market value. So Carter, talk to me about the phenomenon of overshooting on the one side, but also doing it on the other side. Sure. Well, I mean, to some extent, in, NVIDIA is just the poster child, right, for what is really in many ways a fear-based approach to markets, which is to say the two most offensive things you can do, of course, is go into true safety staples consumer names or try to hide in idiosyncratic growth, i.e., let's take Microsoft, a mature business that has reliable growth that is less dependent on the business cycle. And if indeed there is a contraction, it doesn't contract the way Ford Motor or Alcoa does. But I think the, the issue about overshooting, to your point, yeah, that, that the irony is that we were coming into this week and it was 100% guaranteed, uh, according to every uh, observer, that we would go higher because the debt deal was resolved. And now 
that's all you needed. You had this AI run. And in fact, of course, they rang a bell of sorts. NVIDIA and the debt deal have nothing at this point left to offer. And I, I would just point out in terms of the, the, the ongoing discussion of lack of breath, there are weak ways to measure that. And this is very important. If you talk about new highs or new lows, that's arbitrary. For instance, Netflix could be making a new 52-week high, but it's still 50% off its all-time high. Right. Uh, or, for instance, a number of stocks above or below a moving average. If a moving average is dead flat, if you have a 2% update, a lot of stocks get above that moving average and change the statistics, right? Uh, advanced decline. So, the real way to consider is the move since the October low broad or not? It's simply this. If there are 3,000 stocks in the Russell 3000, there are a few less because of um, basically buyouts and so forth, but all constituents since the low, global low in equities, from the DAX, the CAC 40 to every index, how many of those constituents are actually up if that's the low? Here's the answer. 50% of all stocks in the index are actually down from their October 13th low. So the index itself is up some 13%, but half the stocks in that index, this is not an arbitrary new high, new low, 52-week high, 52-week low, above or below moving average. It's just taking the reference point that everyone is citing as the low for the market. Half the stocks are actually down. And here's the worst part. The index is up 13%. The performance, median performance of all constituents is up one basis point. It's, a, it's almost, if it weren't so sad, it'd be laughable. It's interesting. If I were Gomez Adams right now, I'd be kissing Carter's arm because when he said cockerone, he did it in such a beautiful French accent. Um, but I digress as I typically do. A little, um, little curveball for you, Carter Worth. NVIDIA, two huge, three huge volume days in a row, couple of gaps to the upside. Is there a potential for the much feared island reversal to the downside? Because as we're sitting here today, that stock has have a pretty meaningful move to the downside, down some four and a half percent. And the volume that we traded over the last couple of days was not short covering. I mean, there were no meaningful shorts in a name. That's just people piling in. What are your thoughts on that? Then Dan's going to look at the S&P. Right. So there are two types of gaps or several types, but there are exhaustion gaps and there are also breakaway gaps. And there's a the big debate whether this is a, a breakaway gap. In, the, in NVIDIA's case, or it's an exhaustion gap, NVIDIA having moved up and up and up, and then this euphoric yet further piece of strength, news-related, and there's almost nothing left. It's the it's that child doing the chin-ups, and how many can he do? He's slipping from the bar here. I, I would just read something that I found astounding, and I'll give you just two seconds. This came over my table. This is a direct quote. NVIDIA's massive run in the market is most likely reflected by the future growth of AI with a, with a very lofty PE and price to sales at the moment. But that is the market pricing in that growth. Ready for this? Many naysayers will come out and say, oh, such a high PE. I wouldn't buy here. To those people, I would say you should probably get a job in a different industry because you don't know what you are talking about or doing. What an arrogant, arrogant thing for anybody to say. Yeah, what 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 a mofo, um, as I might say here. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, listen, really? Let me really? just say this, Carter. Okay, that two hundred and fifty billion dollar rally 
in a week in one stock, and that's not accounting for the other stocks that it pulled up with it, okay, was based on a $4 billion revenue beat for the current quarter that might incorporate double or triple ordering. It might incorporate a lot of ordering by companies who feel the need to make those orders because all their competitors are doing the same thing. Remember, all of these companies have spent the last six to nine months cutting costs, cutting jobs. These chips are expensive. The supercomputers that they go into are expensive. The cost of compute to run them is expensive. If you cannot commercialize this, if you cannot actually make some sort of revenue off it that ultimately will turn into earnings, and that doesn't happen soon, and we have a difficult economy, this is what gets cut next. So if you're telling me hundreds of billions of dollars in a week of a market cap have been created because a $4 billion revenue beat on a quarter in one company, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. Okay, moving on, let's look at the S&P 500 because this is something that's also got me a bit um, excited, okay? So we were talking last night on, on Fast Money again about you know the market dragging up. Carter, your data about the, uh, the Russell 3000 is fascinating, um, especially the data about where most of the stocks are relative to their October lows and how much the ones that are up, how much they're up. Look at this thing, man. If you're trying to make an argument that this is like a broad-based rally, it's just not. The S&P has been in this range, right, for two months or so here. It stuck is is, is kind of head above the sand a little bit. It's back here a little bit. Um, you know, I get it. You know, if we're going to break out, we're going to go to that August um, high. It's it's 43.35, where the hell it is here. Talk to us about what you're thinking, because Guy just asked you about the gap in the chart of NVIDIA, but you've often said this for years and years. I mean, when you look at a major indice and you look at gaps, the gaps are meant to be filled, and you have some data on that. Sure. So actually, uh, the strength earlier in the week filled an unfilled gap when you, when you see that August peak, which is on this chart, you actually see your lower of the two red lines, the parallel lines you've drawn. The market gapped down on August 22nd. It was a down 3% day that day. And that was uh, already a two, three-day sell-off that ended up being a 20% decline, right, from the August 22nd peak to the October 13th low. Yesterday's strength, we filled that gap. And that is the sole unfilled down gap in the history of the S&P going back to 1928. There are none above but there are gaps unfilled below. Let's look at them. So current, this is you know uh, yesterday's close or whatever it is, you see the current price for 205. So we have unfilled gaps immediately below uh, and those are the levels 4082, 4030, 3980, and that's respectfully down 3%, 4%, 5%. We can look at it on the chart, but the point is, this schematic, there's that, that, that solid blue horizontal line was a dotted red line on the top of the chart. It was an unfilled gap. And the strength associated with Mondays or Tuesdays, of course, Monday was a holiday, opening thrust, filled that gap. But we leave three below. Let's look at a longer-term chart of this. There's, uh, let's look at an even longer-term chart of this. What we have now, you see all of those blue lines were dotted red lines. Not to say that all gaps uh, get filled. They do not. Somehow, the notion that we're off to the races, that we're going to continue to strengthen, make new highs as the bulls would have it, and we're not going to fill those three unfilled gaps that are immediately below, I would say the odds of that are as close to zero as you can get. Here's the problem with all of this, and I totally agree with this. When you talk about NVIDIA, NVIDIA and you look at the S&P 500, same thing. When they start to trade down, what's the buy point? It's psychological, obviously, on the way up, FOMO missing out, but on the way down, you use valuation. You know, you say, oh, what? Oh, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I don't want to buy it here, right? Because it feeds on itself the same way the upside is a downside. 
The problem is when the market goes down, and I believe that it will at some point and fill those gaps, obviously, the narrative starts to come together. And what, what I mean by that, debt ceiling was not an issue at the end of last year. No one was even talking about it. The bank crisis wasn't an issue until for 99% of people until March 6th. We get these things resolved, and you want to call them resolved. We got the bank issue resolved with less lending, and we're going to get the debt ceiling resolved with less spending. And we're going to have debt ceiling resolved with issuing more treasuries. I could go on and on. My, my point is that it's like an excuse to buy, an excuse. AI is an excuse to chase. Yeah. But what's the excuse to buy on the down? That's the that's where I think this is really dangerous in terms of people that are out there that are buying the markets at these levels. You make a point, Carter. I could make a bullish comment to your point about half the Russell's you know, half the Russell 3000 is down. I could say, okay, if I'm bullish, I'm going to say, well, they're going to catch up, right? They're going to catch up. But what are they catching up to? Because those are tangible companies that that need capital, that trade on valuation, that aren't owned by the same people, that don't show up in the meme world. So long-winded way of saying, I agree with all this, and I think it's going to happen. I thought it would have happened already, and it hasn't. And, you know, again, from a quality of earnings perspective, as we go into the middle of the second quarter, I think the realization will be that 220 is not going to be attainable for 2023 and we will we will roll forward to 2024 numbers starting with third quarter 2023 and people can put an unrealistic number and start to trade on that in the fed zone. So anyway, see what happens here but at best I think we're still range bound and at worst Carter I think we do fill those gaps. So Jacob Oh, and sorry, evaluation sorry. is a notoriously bad timing tool. I think maybe to your point people will try to apply that when it's down and yet uh, either they won't do it because they'll hold off or they will and it won't be cheap enough because it is invariably a, a situation where you always get cheaper. One thing about the bifurcation, just to your point, is uh, and I we ha I have clients that say, well, wait till those laggards catch up. The history of bifurcation is exactly the opposite. The hope, the thought, the conventional wisdom is that the strong are telling the truth. Microsoft has actually got an accurate read on the future. So does NVIDIA, right? Uh, so, so does Apple. And sort of the home builders and that the weak ones, the three M's and the banks, they're so cheap, they stabilize and the bifurcation gets resolved by the weak curling up and coming to life and the strong staying strong. Well, guess what? Every single time it's been resolved the opposite way. So the nifty 50 was bifurcation and ends up the steep ones succumb, Xerox and Polaroid and Eastman Kodak. We had it in the 07 peak as the market was making new highs in October 07, but the banks were already down 20, 30%. We had it um, in the dot-com and we have it now. Bifurcation is almost always resolved by the weak ones actually having an accurate read of what's coming and the strong ones simply reflecting people hiding in them. But when they stop hiding in them, the strong ones succumb. I feel very, very bifurcated. So. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Well, speaking of, you know, strength, Apple making a new all-time high today. I think, you know, from the low we saw in earlier this year, about 125, I mean, that's a pretty historic move. Stock's probably up 50%-ish. Well, um, it, it's actually a new, it's a new 52-week, but if the all-time high came in late August uh, 2021 was just about uh, what was it 183 guys. So all right, so okay, so I'm off by, but here's, but here's, but here's, here's where I'm going with this. Um, we're right there, effectively. The potential for a double top in this is extraordinary. I would submit, given the unabated run we've had over the last six months. But Carter, let's take a look at the NDX because again, this thing is I'm telling a much different story, but. You know, people, this perceived flight to quality um, in, in a handful of names, I mean, things are getting crowded really quick. And that's a great looking chart. There's no denying. But, you know, have we sort of overshot and what is this setting up for? Yeah. And the way to really sort of 
dissect this is there's an equal weight ETF, the um, I guess it's QQEW, and you'll see that it doesn't look anything like this. So it's just further and further testament to one or two players pulling the team along as the team continues to basically not perform well. Uh, I would expect uh, this to at least check back to the level from which it broke out, and if not, ultimately give back more than that. Yeah, well, and, and again, this is not going to look too dissimilar. Um, let's pull up this the the uh, SMH chart, the, the ETF that tracks the semiconductor index. And again, you know, obviously, NVIDIA, um, a huge part of that. Uh, Taiwan Semi is also one of the largest components. And if you look at the SMH, um, it is telling that sort of story too, but it's a bit narrower um, and it's a bit more uh, sharp, obviously, the, the parabolic rise. So the check back to that breakout level, Carter, makes some sense. And then to your point about bifurcation, we just want to pull up the Russell 2000 and really quickly so this is small caps and to danny's point about access to capital cost to capital a lot of these companies are unprofitable so this is kind of in, in, in kind of telling the story in a picture carter of what you just kind of laid out about some of the weaker companies kind of leading the way well that's right or, or not participating and then again they're perfectly valid, but I don't think it's accurate to interpret it as the opportunity that these catch up. It's it's almost always the opposite, that these belong here and that they're not cheap uh, and have every possibility of getting worse, whereas the strong ones are ultimately full, rich, crowded, steep, or the word in fundamentals, expensive. Yeah. I mean, I these all these charts make sense. So Carter, I talk about this on the tape all the time. And you have meetings all the time with fund managers and I'm trying to get people to understand and it, it's explained in these charts. So if you're a fund manager at a large Boston mutual fund mm -hmm. and you have to beat the S and P or you're paid to beat the S and P and then within each sector, you're overweight or underweight, they come to you and they say, all right, you know, they, they see these charts, they are forced, their hands get forced again to sell the names that aren't performing. And Dan and I talked about this like week last week, the, the likes of PayPal and square, et cetera, to go chase. Because we are, you know, almost halfway through the year here. And if you didn't do that, you're and you just have to do it. And June 30, this should be quite something actually at the end of the quarter now, now that I think about it. But Carter, talk to the process, if you don't mind, just for two minutes about those. Sure. And yeah, those players, and 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 Daniel refers to Boston in particular. There's two particularly large players up there, each with over a trillion. There's another down in Baltimore, names everyone knows. Um, but I'll give you an anecdote that uh, is, speaks to this, having to do something. Um, I was once presenting, this is probably almost 20 years ago, and I said, you know, this stock is particularly steep. I think you should trim it. And the PM says, I can't. I can't. And I said, why not? What do you mean? Of course you can. He said, no, I can never buy it back. I said, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Of course, trim it now. And if it dips, you'll buy it back. He said, no, no, you understand. We're full as a firm. We can only have a limit of so much that this firm can own of that stock. And it's full. So if I give this up, someone else internally, another PM will grab it and I will be locked out of this thing forever. Now think about that. That's not money management. That's not valuation. That's not just discussing free cash flow. That's just playing chess with a benchmark. In fact, with a situation where you can't give up a stock because you'll never be able to touch it again. So finding NVIDIA 10 years ago or an ISRG when everyone else has got a knife and a scalpel and you've got a robot in the operating room, you wanna own ISRG. The point is, that there are mechanical things. These people are benchmarked to an index. They are forced, the word Danny used, they are forced to do things that in a, sometimes a practical sense they wouldn't otherwise do. They have to benchmark. They cannot let the benchmark get away from them by too much because you lose your job. And I'll, I'll, let me add to that. The quants know it. 
Quants yep, have all this information it. at their fingertips. So yeah. they know how to force the chase to the up and to the down. So I'll just add that part too. All right, Carter, you've been very generous with your time. Before you get out of here, you had a report that hit my inbox uh, from worth charting this morning. And I actually, before I opened it, I was like, oh, thank goodness that Carter is going to actually reinforce something on a stock that I care about deeply. Um, and it was Tesla. And then I got through the report and it was brilliant. Um, and it actually, um, I don't know, it, it, it belies a little bit of my thought process here. Talk to us what you're seeing um, and the charts in Tesla right here before we let you go. Sure. So Tesla's, uh, you know, try to trade this as much or as often as anybody. And there have been some good judgments and some bad ones. But take a look at this setup. Now, those are perfectly parallel mathematical lines. Yes. Look at the yeah. next chart. That's look at the next chart. It's Tesla. There's a lot of symmetry, rules to symmetry, uh, rules of ascents and descents. And we're basically approaching a level which is inherently difficult level, but we're not there yet. So let's put in some arrows to make a point. It's just exactly to the penny, to the penny, to the penny over and over. Uh, but my hunch here is this time that rather than actually hitting its head and turning down again, that we're going to press a little higher. So next iteration, take a look at that's a one year line because uh, that's a, a four year chart and we've pressed above it. Let's zero in on that and let's now put in a moving average. What you've got here is the, now let's just remove the trend line and just the moving average. The 150 days on the cusp of flattening. You can annotate it other ways, next iteration. Here's a shorter term, excuse me. Now put in an annotation or two. This is what a reversal looks like. I, I think it has some room to run. There is overhead here, but my hunch is to be on the long side. And what I like about it day to day is it's hour to hour relative strength is okay relative to things uh, that I think are way overdone, like NVIDIA. 225 is going to be your level, Dan. Um, if we were to get there, it's probably the opportunity to, you know, try this again on the short side. But, you know, the, the first chart, I love the first chart with no lines, and then Carter brings in the chart of Tesla. It's actually brilliant, because when you see it, it just makes a lot of sense. But let's see. I mean, you take that, then take the next one where the actual chart is. It's fascinating. So some might be inclined to say, you know what, this chart's going to hold up. Carter's showing you why it should break out. But in my opinion, I think the breakout's going to be somewhat short-lived, maybe 225, Dan, Nathan. All right. Um, I, I don't disagree with that. The one thing I'll tell you that makes me nervous about Tesla right here, especially is like, I think the fever broke with this AI stuff. If you look at that C3 AI guy, you and I were talking about it yesterday and the market calls up 30%. It closed up 35%. It's down about 10, 11% today. Um, I think NVIDIA, the reversal in Avago, Broadcom yesterday and Marvel filling in that, that gap a little bit. Um, I think the fever might have broken here. So um, I was worried though, that Tesla is getting kind of sweeped, swept up into this whole thing last week or two weeks ago when Elon was speaking with David Faber. He mentioned something like, we're going to have our AI moment, which made me kind of nervous a little bit um, and being short the stock or long puts, that sort of thing. So, um, all right, Carter, we really appreciate you going over time with us here on the market call. Uh, thanks for your fine work, bud. We appreciate you. Okay, man. Best. Thanks, bud. To you. Danny, thought, thoughts on that, on, on the Tesla here a little bit. And, and just I'm from, so in shock right now that you would bring up something bullish on it. And even if it's an well, no, you know what? No, I'm kidding. It's it just kind of understanding yeah. what could go wrong yeah. a little bit. And it could easily, I, I think this last 20 points from 180 to 200 throughout this whole period where we've seen a lot of these semis being swept up. I mean, let's be very clear. 
One thing, Tesla is a buyer of these chips, okay? They've been buyer of, of these CPU, GPU combinations. When you think about autonomy and the, so much of the value of this stock of Tesla is wrapped up in their ability to get to full self-driving, which you and I, and I think many people think is, is, is yep. years away, yep. but that's a big part of this story, correct? China, you know, whatever you want, unlimited yeah. demand. Yeah. Robo taxis. Yeah. It's it if that's all it is, is technical How much do nature. You rely on the charts. Okay. So like uh, like it, it's an well, when it looks like that, I ignore them. You do. No, I'm joking. I'm okay. joking. No, we used to have Carter in our office and we I were short our name and he would like, yeah, I'm like, Carter, what now nah, look next. No, so no, but listen, that, that's an objective way to look at it. Yeah. It feels like it could go higher. Yeah. So it needs a reason to go down. We'll see what that may or may yeah. not be. But well, it's been floating higher with no yes, good reason. I'm well aware. Right. Let's hit a yeah. couple things here, guy. You brought up the banks earlier um, and they really do act very poorly. Um, and when you think about on a relative basis to um, other parts of the market that you think should be acting better, especially as we got through this debt ceiling situation, hopefully, I think part of the, the issue with the market today is maybe that's not a done deal. It still needs to pass the House and Biden needs to um, sign that thing. So it seems to be a little bit in political purgatory, at least in the time being. And then obviously there was, a, OK, the regional banking thing was over. I, you, none of us believe that. Talk to us a little bit about the banks. XLF doesn't look particularly great. Bank America, um, one of the worst acting stocks in the entire market, my opinion. Thoughts there. And then, Danny, I'd love to get your fundamental take on them. There's, there's no bounce. I mean, we talked about it yesterday. I mean, the BKX doesn't bounce. The carry has bounced a little bit, but not nearly commensurate with the broader market move. And it's got to be concerning. They're clearly not on the front burner in terms of network coverage and people talking about them sort of out there in the Twitter sphere and stuff. But it doesn't mean things have been rectified or fixed. The bigger banks are getting bigger. doesn't mean they're getting better, though. And the landscape is such. I mean, Danny can speak to this, and we talked about it on the tape last week. Very quietly, two tens has gone out to about 75, 80 basis points inversion, having traded down, I think, below 50 basis points. Nobody's talking about that either. So I think, you know, I don't know who's going to be next, but for me, there's no compelling reason to be trying to cherry-pick banks at this point. And I know we had a... Uh, one of the analysts on yesterday that said contra. I just don't think now's the time. So mortgages have been selling off. Treasuries have been selling off. Rates moving higher on both. Obviously, they move in inverse, you know, inverse direction. Um, with that, to Dan's point he made a few weeks ago, the marks are coming back on these books for these banks that haven't dealt with it yet. And the irony is that PacWest didn't sell securities to Kennedy Wilson last week. They sold construction loans. The point is that here beyond that, all this, and I said it was a, beauty pageant for the banks. These ones that come up for sale and the banks, uh, big banks all get a look at them. They don't forget what they saw, right? It wasn't pretty. And what they saw was not the securities portfolio. They saw the, the loan portfolio. And I think there's a big difference. In that. Let me just highlight something else which came out today. So the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, which really caters to low-end borrowers, right? So you got your Fannie and Freddie and Jenny May. Jenny May is kind of where you find the F, um, FHA loans. They're modifying right now for low-end borrowers who can't make payments, right? Because they can't refinance because it goes to a higher rate. So they're now being a middleman and paying a part of their monthly payments. It's on the back pages today of the journal. It's a proposed rule that go in effect in the 30 days. That's happening now. I mean, so we talk about real economy stuff that's occurring. We talk about banks in general. Banks are pulling back. We've had some M&A. We've had some decent M&A, right, recently. But now I think people are starting to look ahead and project what these numbers are going to look like for the banks. And so... Jamie Dimon's telling you, quantitative tightening is, yeah. is still not being paid attention to. It's a killer for all well, these banks. The other thing, Guy, to your point about the, you know, the large cap names that, that, again, have supposedly been the beneficiary, right, from the deposit outflows, right, from some of the regionals. When you think about it, like 
if we are literally in the second or third inning of the regional banking sort of crisis, especially with rates going higher and this, but like basically that mark to market um, issue becomes more acute. And there is a reason for um, some of these regionals to lose deposits because again, maybe the losses they suffer, we haven't even seen bankruptcies, you know, on the commercial real estate side, which could put big holes. Okay. Forget the mark to market held to maturity sort of stuff. That's another part of this equation. Then all of a sudden these major banks are going to have to up the ante as it relates to FDIC insurance, right? And so regulatory costs are going to go up. I mean, the list goes on and on. So that's why I think the banks um, act the way they do. Guy, here's one though. And you mentioned the XLE and the OIH. The OIH is trading at five or six month lows here. So that's oil services ETF. Let's pull up crude for a second here. And we've seen a lot of um, data about China. There was weak data today. Um, is this crude move, um, you know, the 50-day is up there at 75. The 200-day is up there at 80. It's below this $70 level. It's down a percent today. Um, and you just see that. We just drew a simple line there. It's been down below that a couple times over the last few months. It feels a little different now. When you look at, let's pull up the OIH for a second here, the, the, the services, right? And then if you want to look at the large integrateds in the XLE, the space feels really heavy. It was a really, and this is really good. Goes back to this AI and the tech and the and the, and the concentration. This was one of the only things working in 2022, yeah. and investors piled into it. And we've been talking about our main man, John Butters. He told us this in his Earnings Insight blog many times late last year, and we recited it on Market Call. Okay, that the contribution of energy earnings in the S&P 500 was going to trail off in Q2. And you better have some other areas pick it up because without energy earnings contribution last year, it would have been a bloodbath, okay, as far as S&P earnings. And that's why your 220 number, Danny, Mm -hmm. this year that you are suspect of, I agree with you. And then if you look at the out year 2024, I think consensus is for high single digits growth, okay? So the market is just massively overpriced. If you look at the 10-year average of the S&P 500, the PE multiple, okay, on a forward basis, this is per fact set, is 17.3%. We're basically trading at 17.8% right now, okay? Or 17 times, times, excuse me. Um, So, Thank you, Danny. You um, seven, so, so a lot of facts that data there. But guy, talk to me about energy because this one feels like it's kind of going the way of the dough yeah. here. Listen, so the wild card here is an OPEC meeting where I think they're going to try to basically do everything they can to get the price back higher. I'm not sure that it matters at this point, but I'll say a couple things. And you pointed this out. When the Chevron, <clears throat> not the Chevron, when Chevron announced that $75 billion buyback, <clears throat> That marked the top in a lot of things. And then it culminated with ExxonMobil on that Friday a few weeks ago announcing their earnings when the stock traded up to, I think, 121, made an all-time high. And you actually outlined a short position in that stock. So energy stocks don't trade particularly well. And I do think part of the story here is people getting out of energy, getting into these high-flying technology, one. Number two, I think people are concerned about this China situation and a global slowdown. And then obviously the underlying commodity isn't helping. So you got three things working against it. I'm going to hold out hope um, for this energy trade, but it certainly looks like a loser right now. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, listen, that was a lot of fun. We covered a lot of ground here. We had two of our best friends, not only in the markets, but in life. Join uh-huh. us today, guy, on the market. I, I feel call. that way. Can I, I make a comment way. on the way out? So Of course, yeah, do of course it. You can. It's your so, show. One of my really really close friends who watches Dan all the time, watches you guys, obviously, and he listens to the show. And he says, does Dan blame you for 
to being so bearish. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I mean, he spent a solid two years, two and a half years with you now. Do you take any blame? I go, blame, credit? What do you want to say? So in here, I, I turned to Dan right before we came in. I go, Dan, do you think he goes, you know what? Yeah, I, I, I do think. So all the vitriol and stuff, got to let, just let the anger, just let, you know, let it go a little bit. You know, it's really funny. Yeah. So last night, um, you know, in our break and guy was remote, but, um, it was Tim and, and Melissa Lee and myself and during fast money. And Melissa just said, I'm getting lit up like a Christmas tree <laughs> and, and, like about you. And she goes at the very end, you know, she's like, you know, Dan, he really is like a happy guy. You know, this in life, I really am when it comes to markets though. I, you know, we talk, we talk about this a lot guy and, 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 you know, like, you know, every trading desk I've ever been on starting in 1997 is, it's just, it's just a, a lot of emotion. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so hopefully you have a process, you have <laughs> management, you have lots of different inputs that help inform smart decision-making process, but there's a lot of emotion in this thing. And just look at all the other participants, look at the analysts on TV who come on, look at people in boardrooms, investment committees, um, you know, executives look at like, look, you know, like there's emotion all over the place. So to me, that's what I love about the markets. That's why I'll never do anything else as as a profession because it, it changes every day the people change the stories change and emotion's a big part of it right guy absolutely listen and here's an asshole comment from jay rice so maybe jacob can pull it up it's almost like clockwork four bears push their book and all indices rally right at 1 p.m okay so this goes back to what <laughs> danny started the show with we're trying to help people we're not trying to it's it's let me tell you i'm going to be honest with you it's really fucking easy to go on TV every day and have the pom-poms out and everything's okay. And then the market gets basically fricasseed and there's no ramifications because everybody's in the same boat. It's the people that are trying to help. I think that people are trying to do uh, the hard work out there, not the easy work. It's really easy to blow hot and cold with the tide. It's really hard to stay with your thought process and to try to help people along the way. Because I got to tell you something. Having lived through 08 and 09, doing Fast Money at that time, and hearing sort of the feedback we got from people that said we didn't warn them, I vowed never to make that mistake again. And I'm not suggesting we're at 08, 09, but there are certainly things out there that are concerning, Dan Nathan. All right. Well, listen, we did it. That was like fun. That, I love, by the way, we get off script. Not that we ever have a script. We don't have a script. We just have some charts that are no, going to help. Sure. People will come, Jay. People will come, Jay. <laughs> All right. Danny Moses in the house. Um, stick around. Um, you know, Guy and I are going to be back tomorrow. Liz Young, yeah, EY from SoFi, will be in the studio with us. Danny, Guy, and myself are going to record a fabulous edition of On the Tape. That's going to be tomorrow morning. And we also have... A Great strategist from J.P. Morgan that Danny and I are going to be speaking to, Gabriela Santos. Um, and so we're going to have a big macro discussion with her. So that drops Friday mornings in your favorite podcast store. I've, I, you know what? I just I base, I just decided what my favorite podcast store is. I'm not going to give it away. Stitcher. And it is Stitcher. But that's <laughs> it for Market Call. I want to thank Danny Moses, who was just wandering around lower Manhattan, just decided to pop up. Talking I mean, heads. How did I get craziest this? thing. Obviously, right. the great Carter Braxton worth of worth charting. I want to thank FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. I want to thank our audience. Good and bad is always appreciated. We will see you tomorrow, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Thanks, guy. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Carter. Thanks, everyone.